Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this morning. Happy Wednesday and happy Easter. Y'all, we only have one more class. Oh, I know. It's so sad. Um, but I'm already thinking about next year. As you all know, a few years ago, we decided to kind of walk through Moses and David to then get to Jesus with the Gospel of John. Um, gosh, I don't remember. I guess it was when we were doing Revelation. I asked, what would you all like to do next? And the number one response was to do another gospel. And so we've got John coming. I'm already starting to work on it because it scares me. And so we are, we're getting there. So just know, Bub's going to be able to send you all of the schedule. Um, I think that we're going to be starting again the week after the week of Labor Day. I think is yeah. when it is. Um, and so you'll get all of that in email. It'll be in the Archangel and all that sort of stuff. So no worries about that. And we'll get the schedule to you. Um, I think it lines up almost exactly that we would do just about one chapter a week of John. But I don't know if some of you have read John recently. Some of his chapters are very long. And so I think I may divide a couple chapters into two weeks. Um, but we'll, we'll get there. Today, we are tying up the story of Solomon. And then next week, we're going to be doing all of the devolution of the kingdoms into the exile. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that right now, because the way the storyteller finishes Solomon's story really intentionally sets up what will ultimately be the exile. And so we're going to see how that kind of hits literarily as we finish up Solomon's life today. So let's have a prayer and we'll get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the gift of this life and for bringing us together today. And We ask that you open us up, help us to make space inside of us, that we may be filled with your spirit of peace, that we can focus on learning today, that we can invite you into our lives and be transformed by your influence, so that as we leave this place, we can be changed to be your hands and feet of love in the world. Today, we offer before you all those that we hold in our hearts and minds, those we know and do not know well, those who need your healing touch, those who feel isolated or alone, and those who feel hopeless. May you be present to them through us and through others of your disciples that they may find you always uplifting to their spirits and their souls. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to kick it off with a question. I actually got a lot of questions this past week. Um, one whole set of questions from someone who was a good student and read ahead. So I'm going to incorporate some of those questions as we go through today's lesson. Um, but one question was about last week. Uh, the question was wondering about the section of chapter 8 when Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant into the finished temple. And so I want to just go back. I did not hit that well because I don't exactly know what to say about it, but I do, I will emphasize a few verses here of chapter 8 and then see if there are some follow-up questions if you all kind of have a specific wondering about this section. So as a reminder, the ark was built at Mount Sinai. It was meant to hold the tablets of the Ten Commandments. 
And then it was moved throughout the wilderness for 40 plus years. Then it was moved into the promised land. It was taken and moved about and left in different places. But ultimately, David made Jerusalem the capital of the unified Israel. And then David brought the ark into Jerusalem. But there was no temple. And so after Solomon built the physical temple, there was the relocation of the ark from wherever it was, to the new temple that Solomon built. And so let's look, just for good measure, at the first few verses of chapter 8. Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the ancestral houses of the, of the Israelites, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. All the people of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the festival in the month of Etanam, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests carried the ark. So they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. The poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. They are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses had placed there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. Okay, we'll stop there. It's important, I think, to note that Solomon makes a big deal of this move. He brings every tribe representation together to watch this move. He sacrifices so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Gross. And so there's just a whole lot going on as this ark is moved into the temple. There is a reiteration of what the ark looks like. If you remember, it's almost like... I always think of how many of you had hope chests or like knew what that was, right? I mean, that's old Southern thing. And so I almost imagine it's like a toy chest or a hope chest of size. And it's got these two cherubs on top made of gold that extend their wings over the center of the ark of the box. And then because you cannot touch the box itself, the ark itself, there are poles that extend out on both sides, sort of like... Uh, monarchs would be carried uh, on a platform, it sort of makes a platform. So people would heft these big poles onto their shoulders on all four sides and move the ark through the city. It could have been on a cart. It could have been carried. It certainly would have been carried into the temple and placed in that holy of holies. It is that center section where most people cannot go. And then it would have just been kept there. There's not a lot more to say about this move. Um, I would simply note that Solomon continues to live into the kind of largesse of his nature. I mean, he was charismatic, I suppose, in that way, where it was always a big show. And we're going to see that as we continue on in the chapters today. Um, but it's a little bit different than what we get with David. When David moves the ark to Jerusalem, it's really about 
David glorifying God. David is dancing in front of the ark, celebrating himself because he has done this good thing for God. For Solomon, it's much more ceremonial. We don't really get that Solomon is doing much here. I imagine the difference is David is, and we are told David is mostly naked when he does this. I mean, that was part of what embarrassed his wife is that he was kind of doing this in a way that was not perhaps indicative of the king. And yet, as the story goes, David is lifted up as someone who does not let embarrassment keep him from celebrating God. Now I almost imagine that Solomon is kind of up in the palace watching all of this happen. So technically speaking, he's blessing it. He's paying for it, kind of. But he is not physically down there doing anything with the ark. And I think that's an important distinction to make because for David, his faithfulness was so personal. And for Solomon, all of the stuff he does that we could understand as faithfulness is much more calculated and political than it is personal. And that's going to come back to bite the descendants here very soon. So any questions or follow-up about that? All right, so the scope of today's lesson, we're going to be looking at chapters 9 through 11. We're going to start with more of Solomon's building projects. Then we're going to have the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And then we're going to talk about Solomon's problems, the errors of Solomon's decisions. So let's look at chapter 9. Now we've already noted in previous chapters that Solomon built a lot of stuff. Solomon continues that expansion and those big building projects. When we get to chapter 9, we essentially come to the end of Solomon's big building spree. And those projects have been expensive. I think it was weeks ago we talked about how the Israelites were warned way, way back that kings are expensive. And so when they began to request kings, they were reminded kings are expensive. Up to this point, Saul and David haven't been that expensive to the Israelites, but Solomon becomes extremely expensive. He's got that big court that people have to pay for. He's established 12 different regions within Israel that all take on the responsibility of one month's worth of support for the court. And beyond that, he's got these economic ties to other kingdoms like in Lebanon to receive all of these materials. And those materials take payment. And so Israel is now collectively paying for things that they do not produce. Not only are their payments going back and forth, but the people have to receive all of these different items, they have to process all of these goods, and then they have to build. That building is not easy or cheap. And so in order to make it happen, Solomon calls in a bunch of forced labor. We're going to discuss the forced labor in a moment. But for now, let's just look at the building projects themselves. Chapter 9, we're just going to start at verse 1. When Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built 
and put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish a royal throne over Israel forever as I promised your father David, saying, there shall not fail you a successor on the throne of Israel. It will stop there. So the opening of chapter 9 emphasizes the potential for things to go wrong. The storyteller is setting up the story as Solomon gets to keep all his stuff so long as he promises to stay faithful to God. It's the same promise, the same covenant that God made with David before him. We are emphasizing the covenantal promise in a way that then sets up why things go wrong in the end. So remember, when the Israelites get taken to exile, they begin to ask questions about why this happened. And it was either God is weak or they are at fault. They decided in the exile, they are at fault. And so how are they at fault? Well, they go into this kind of detail for their fault in order to then justify why God let the Babylonian captivity happen. So we are beginning to set that up right here and right now. The way the story is told also leans into a very interesting idea. If you look at verse 1, Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. That's an interesting little phrase to use because what the writer is saying here is these building projects are because Solomon wants them built. That's very different than what we have seen within other actions like with David and the rest, where there is a specific consideration of what God wants, that they, like David or Saul or others, judges, they are trying to perceive what to do on behalf of God. Here it's as if Solomon wants a bunch of stuff. God lets Solomon get a bunch of stuff. And that's okay, but it's as if the relationship and the commitment is breaking down a little bit because ultimately the Israelites need for God to not have been weak in allowing the Assyrians and the Babylonians to overtake them. All right, any questions about that before we get to the stuff about the exile? Okay, look at verse six. If you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a taunt among all peoples. This house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they have forsaken the Lord their God, who brought their ancestors out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping them and serving them. Therefore, the Lord has brought this disaster upon them. So what does this thing kind of sound like? 
It's the exile. I mean, the Babylonians come and overtake them. The storyteller knows this. They're telling the story in such a way as to make sure that the people understand Solomon did this stuff wrong. And then the people following Solomon did this stuff wrong. And all of those wrongs led to God just kind of throwing his hands up and saying, y'all have to pay for this in some way. And then when they are in exile, they repent and they return to God and they come out of the exile and rebuild. And that's stuff that we can do another time. But we can see that the construction of this story is prefiguring the exile very explicitly. So now I mentioned the idea of forced labor. So we have, this is an interesting dynamic, and I'm going to kind of take a little tangent, but a good question was asked ahead of the class about the line that says, Solomon conscripted forced labor out of Israel. And so who are these people that are being forced into labor? So if we go back, don't turn anything, but just kind of listen to some of the structure. If we go back and we look at the way that God promised entry into the promised land for the Israelites, back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, when the people were entering the land of Canaan, they were supposed to conquer the Canaanites and submit them to forced labor. Listen to what it says. If a Canaanite city accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you as forced labor. So we already have prefiguring this moment for Solomon, even though it was written after Solomon's reign, this idea that non-Israelites living in the land could be conscripted into forced labor. Let me just pause and say forced labor. It, it is perhaps not necessarily slavery. So I don't want to go so far as to imagine like people in chains kind of stuff, but they do not have a choice. And so essentially what is happening here is that as David defeats all these different groups, the Edomites, the Canaanites, the Philistines, and whatever, all around Israel, Solomon inherits control of these different groups of people all around Israel. Those people, even though many of them, like the Canaanites in particular, are Semitic, they are a very, very far removed cousins of the Israelites. And they are certainly not religiously Jewish like the Israelites are supposed to be. And so they essentially are the second-class citizens that can be forced to labor on behalf of the kingdom of Israel. So after David has done all of this, David actually begins requiring these people to work as a labor force, essentially unpaid labor. But after the death of David, Solomon continued and expanded all of these policies. Because as we noted, Solomon expanded the economic relationships between Israel and these other countries. So if we look back at what happens in order to build all of these buildings, Solomon needs laborers to do things like bring the trees from Lebanon. And so we talked about how he created this relationship with King Hiram of Tyre, which is up in Lebanon, and he paid the king food in order for the king to send these big cedar trees down to Israel. And we talked about how they floated down the Mediterranean to the coast and then had to be taken in from the coast. 
it's not only transportation from the coast into Jerusalem, but it has to be transportation from the forests over to the coast to float down in the Mediterranean. Well, who's doing that? And so what's interesting here is that although Solomon likely pulled forced labor from the non-Israelites at the beginning, as Solomon's building projects expanded, Solomon needed people he trusted to go outside of Israel and begin to labor on behalf of the kingdom. And so some scholars think that although there is a point at which it is said that no Israelites were made slaves, um, I want to say it's 1 Kings 9, it says, of Israelites, Solomon made no slaves. So did I read that to you? No, not yet. Okay, so in chapter 9, verse 22, it says, no Israelites were made slaves. So it's as if the storyteller is thinking that this may be an issue. However, there are other sections of this that seem to imply that the people who had to be sent outside of Israel, for example, to Lebanon to get these trees, were people that they had to trust would actually stay loyal. And so many scholars think that Israelites began to be sent outside of Israel to labor forcibly on behalf of the kingdom. Now, again, these are not necessarily it's not quite Egyptian slavery of the Israelite people when they were there, not quite. But there is a sense that this is not good. This is not the way things should be. And this plants the seed of that forced labor idea, that kind of um, indentured servitude, so to speak, that will then become another problem for Israel that leads to the exile. I also want to note that the word here in Hebrew that describes forced labor, mas is the Hebrew word, is the same word that is used in Exodus chapter 1 to describe the way that the Israelites are in forced labor in Egypt. So one way or the other, whether there are detailed differences between the two, these storytellers are obviously trying to make a link between what was done wrongly in Egypt is essentially being done wrongly again, but this time in Israel itself by those in political power. Yes. Yeah, so the question is, was there an established kind of economy of labor? So even though one may not really want to schlep wood to and from the Mediterranean, they may choose to do so because it pays. Um, that, there is no indication of that. Um, however, you did ask about bartering. So the, the way that a difference I see here versus when you may see when you may see like slavery in other places, I imagine this is a bit more kind of serfdom style forced labor where it's not as if the laborers are starving, but they don't get to live where they want and they probably don't get to do the work that they would choose to do. But if they do the work they've been tasked to do, 
they get food and they get housing and they get security. And so in that sense, I mean, it's not ideal. Nobody wants to be in that situation, but at least it is a step above perhaps what we might immediately equate to slavery. I imagine it's a bit more like a medieval serfdom situation where people don't have freedom by any means. But at least if they just do the thing the king wants done, life is okay. Like they're not starving, they're not homeless or houseless or any of that kind of stuff. They can have children, their children can have jobs. I mean, it's, it's not what we would put up there as best, but it could be worse. Either way, it is simply not the system that the writers seem to understand as ideal social structure because it is certainly used later on to point to the problem of Israel such that God would then allow them to go into exile. So we can put lipstick on that pig if we want to, but I want to make sure we know that this is one of a list of problems that mostly begin with Solomon. Not all of them. David did have some forced labor, yes, but Solomon almost certainly forced Israelites into labor as well. And that kind of was a bridge too far. Other questions or thoughts? So there is a ramification here of this forced labor. After Solomon dies, there is a challenger, Jeroboam, to his throne, which we're going to just touch on at the very end of today, because that's going to be next week. That challenger to his throne ultimately challenges Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, which is super helpful. Jeroboam, Rehoboam, I know. It, just prepare yourself. Don't even try. Like, if you know Saul, David, Solomon, you're totally good. No one would ever expect you to know any of the other kings that are coming after this because their names are so confusing. I mean, I remember having to memorize them, um, you know, in school, and it was just like some of their names were like one letter different. I'm thinking, who was first and who and which line? It's crazy. So just don't even worry about it. Um, but right after Solomon, you essentially have the split of the kingdoms, and you've got Rehoboam, Solomon's son, who is in the southern kingdom, and you've got Jeroboam, who is challenging Solomon in his lifetime because of many of these policies. Jeroboam ultimately kind of wins over the majority of the people because Solomon has been too oppressive. And so whatever policy Solomon does, even if we've tried to be gentle, if the storyteller has tried to give him a little bit of grace, apparently is not popular because Jeroboam is able to challenge for the throne and that's ultimately when the kingdom splits into two. So whatever Solomon is doing here, not the way people really want to live. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions about that? Right. Section two. The Queen of Sheba is coming for a visit. So look at chapter 10. Let's just read the first dozen verses or so. Chapter 10, verse 1. When the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, fame due to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, 
She told him all that was on her mind. Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had observed all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his valets, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. So she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your accomplishments and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Not even half had been told me. Your wisdom and your prosperity far surpassed the report that I had heard. Happy are your wives. Happy are these your servants who continually attend you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king to execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, a great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again did spices come in such quantity as that which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. And then it goes on and on and on, and it's just verses and verses and verses of all the gold and all the jewels and all the whatever. Essentially what is happening here, we'll get to the queen in one moment. Solomon's fame, as the story goes, is now renowned. There are other monarchs outside of Israel who want to come get a piece of Solomon. Is that true? <coughs> um, the historic accuracy of Solomon's amazing kingship does not exist. So when we see story bits like this, like the Queen of Sheba coming all this way to see the great King Solomon, um, totally could have happened. Fine. It's also part of the narrative technique that sets Solomon up as this extremely grand person. We're going to see, I'm going to read the end of this chapter, where we get Solomon is just, I mean, he is everything. Everything's going right. He's got more stuff than you, and he's got more authority than you. Everything. He's the best person ever. All of that is necessary in order to set up a very grand fall. What the storyteller is doing is trying to set Solomon up as everything the world thinks he should be. The biggest buildings, the most gold, the best food, the, all the best clothes and everything else. Because what does that sound like to us? It sounds like what the world tells us we're supposed to have. We're supposed to have a beautiful house and a nice car and great clothes and authority and money in the bank and children who behave and you name it. I mean, all the stuff. We're supposed to have all of that stuff. And if we're living right, we're going to get it. And if we don't get it, something's wrong. What the storyteller is saying in the grand arc of this story is, no, that is not correct. That is never more important than your relationship to God. Solomon has done what a good 21st century American does, and that is achieves above all else at the expense of really healthy spiritual life. It is the danger of humanity. It's the danger of who we may be without God, which is just separate from anything good. And so Solomon is being set up here with his renown 
and with his wealth to be the kind of person the world tells us to be, so much so that when the fall comes, it is a grand fall. Now let's talk about the Queen of Sheba. Where is Sheba? Anybody? Nope, you don't know, because no one knows. So, <clears throat> ah, Sheba could be any number of places. Most scholars at this point think Sheba is one of two places. Either Sheba is down in Ethiopia, the kingdom of Aksum, or Sheba is the kingdom of Seba that is in Yemen. Now, I think we all know where Ethiopia is, right? Ethiopia kind of, if you trail south of Egypt, kind of down on the eastern side of Africa, we may not know where Yemen is. Um, and so if you imagine Saudi Arabia, we've all got that Saudi Arabian peninsula. Most people probably think that whole thing is Saudi Arabia. No, at the bottom, kind of the southern end of Saudi Arabia, there are two main countries. You've got Yemen and Oman. And so Saudi Arabia does not actually go all the way to the ocean because Yemen and Oman finish that journey all the way down to the coast. Yemen is essentially right across what would be the um, Persian Gulf, so to speak, um, from Djibouti. And so it is not technically Africa, but it is extremely close. Um, it would be in the Arabian Peninsula. So Arabian people, not African peoples. We don't know. Um, I think historically, Sheba has been more likely connected to Ethiopia mostly because of what happened with the story of the Ark in the first kind of 12 centuries. So that then takes me on another tangent. We did get a question last week or during the week about what happened to the Ark. Because remember a few weeks ago, I said I was gonna look that up and then I forgot to tell you. So let's take a side trip on where the Ark might be today. Um, someone I forget who said they thought isn't it in Ethiopia. Um, there is a church, St. Mary of Zion or something like that, church in Ethiopia that claims to have the Ark, although no one has seen it um, because you can't see it or you'll die. And so it's in a building, totally. Um, it's in a building and I mean, all joking aside, there are Orthodox Christian, Ethiopian, Coptic Orthodox Ethiopian Christians who defend this building to the death. I mean, just a few years ago, there was like a massive slaughter of hundreds of people because the building was attacked. Um, and so this is, I, I can joke, but the people who protect this site, it is no joke. They believe that the Ark is there and yet no one has seen it because you can't see it. Um, there is a report of a British archeologist from World War II era. Um, I, you've all heard the stories, you know, as the Nazis were going all over the place, they were trying to steal, steal stuff. They were stealing art and they were stealing precious things and they were hiding them in caves and all that sort of stuff. So at the time, allied forces were sort of going about different places of the world, trying to protect kind of world goods. I mean, things that are beyond, you know, priceless, they are irreplaceable. And apparently, as the story goes, a British archaeologist went to this church, saw the Ark, 
claimed that it was no more than a hundred years old, um, that it had been kind of fabricated to look exactly like the Ark, but it was absolutely not a 3,000 year old relic. Um, that's it. That's all we've got. And so there are people there who commit absolutely, that's what it is. We've got at least one random archaeological anecdote saying no. People have not seen it to be able to verify it, but they believe it. And so I don't mind at all that people believe a thing they cannot see. That seems to work, works for me. Um, but I also can then say that it's not verifiable in any way. So believe it if you need to believe it. Um, I personally don't think that's the Ark. I think it's gone. Um, I think, you know, if Harrison Ford wants to go out finding it, that's fine. Um, I do want to say, though, that over a couple thousand years, a story developed about how the Ark got to Ethiopia. And that story is that when the Queen of Sheba, this connects back to what we're talking about, when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, she was not only impressed with his wit, but she was taken in to his house in the sense that when she went back home, she was pregnant. And that her child, whose name is, hold up, Manalik, because I didn't ever learn this, that Solomon's son, via the Queen of Sheba, Manalik, went back and became the first emperor of Ethiopia and created a Solomonic dynasty that continued all the way to the 1970s. And that was then why when the temple was destroyed in 586 or whatever, when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem, it was shepherded off to Ethiopia because it was Solomon's bloodline that were, that were the monarchs or the emperors or whatever you want to say of Ethiopia. So it wasn't just randomly Ethiopia was chosen, but that it was Solomon's son, Manelik, and then his descendants that became protectors of the Ark when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. That story came from a 12th century story. There is no archeological evidence that that big long story I just told you existed before about 800 plus years ago. So was it simply oral tradition that finally got written down? Sure could be. But could it also have been a lovely way to validate whatever was happening in Ethiopia? Sure, it could be. Um, one way or the other, as a Christian, I want us to kind of do what I think Christians do best and not need physical stuff in order to believe the truth behind a story. And so, there you go. I think that's probably all I need to say. Any follow-up or clarity or wondering that you might have about all that? Weren't certain people, uh, certain priests allowed inside and take care of the ark? So, in Ethiopia or in Jerusalem? No, I mean in, in ancient Israel. I mean from the beginning yes. of the Ark. There were only certain people who could go to the Holy of Holies and be with the Ark. So are there no ordained people? Good question. Who could do that? 
Okay, so the question was, you know, back when the Ark was in Jerusalem, the whole setup of the temple was that the Ark was placed, I mean, we read it in chapter 8, the Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, only the top priests, and depending on the, it depends on the phase of life of Israel as to who gets to go into the Holy of Holies, um, let's just for sake of argument say it was the high priest. Um, different periods of time, other priests were allowed to be in there to do certain things, um, but it's Essentially, you're talking about only a super select group of people, but still, someone was able at all times to go into the Holy of Holies. So then when it was relocated to Ethiopia, is there someone there? So, very good question. There is, according to the stories I was reading about this um, church in Ethiopia, St. Mary's, there is a single person tasked to be present with the ark at all times. And so they go in, they're like named as a child, and they spend their entire life doing nothing but protecting the ark. They are not a priest. And even the archbishop of the Coptic Orthodox Church is not allowed to go into the space with the ark. And so essentially what this means is the only person who sees it can't leave it to then say that they saw it or anything like that. So I don't know if that's still happening today. It seems, the stuff I read seems to imply that yes, there is still kind of a caretaker of the Ark that is there, but it's not an ordained person. It's, well, I mean, ordained in like the lowercase ordained to do that particular job, um, but not a priest, not a bishop, none of that stuff. The priest bishops can't go in. It's only the caretaker of the Ark that is allowed into that space where they say the ark is right now in Ethiopia. Did you say the bloodline went through the 1970s? That's what I read. So yes, um, I honest to goodness, I, I don't know. I did not know any of this stuff until a couple weeks ago. So the question is, did, did I say the 1970s? Yes. So what I read was Queen of Sheba comes home from visiting Solomon. She's pregnant. Manalik is born, and then the descendants continued a total bloodline all the way until the 1970s. I don't, well, I mean, in the 1970s in Ethiopia, there was civil war and all of that unrest that then led to the famine of the 80s that we all remember. So Ethiopia was, and I've said this here before, Ethiopia was a grand civilization. I mean, they could make, a, they raised a lot of food, they traded, um, with nations all over the world. And so we, because of the 70s and 80s, may naturally think of Ethiopia as this destitute country where everyone's starving. It wasn't that until the 70s. I don't know, because I didn't dig any deeper, if that whole like through, I, I kind of remember it said 1974. So I don't know if something happened, there was a coup, there was just general melee because of all of the unrest that happened in the 70s that led to the famine of the 80s? That's my guess. But I, I do not know that. And then I kind of feel like someone's going to discover one of Solomon's bloodline, like hidden in the basement of a church in France or something like that. So stay tuned. I'm sure someone's going to claim that. Is there any of, um, note that it was Ethiopian representative from the Queen of Ethiopia who was, of course, baptized 
Oh, okay. So you're talking about the Ethiopian eunuch? So the Queen of Sheba and the Ethiopian eunuch are like 800 years separated. Um, so the Queen of Sheba visits Solomon, and this is way before the Assyrian and the Babylonian uh, exile. Then there is an Ethiopian eunuch that represents the Queen of Ethiopia in Acts of the Apostles. But that then is in the first century. And so you're talking, really it's probably more like 900 years that separates those two. Ethiopia is still a powerful empire, sending representatives back and forth to Israel. So there's obviously a connection between Israel and Ethiopia that extends for centuries. But it's not, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Sheba is referenced in Acts. I don't think so. Um, it's Ethiopia. And so that's why we really don't know what Sheba is, where Sheba is. Sheba could absolutely be Yemen. And this entire story of the queen going back to Ethiopia doesn't even, it's not, it's not even possible. Um, physically speaking, it, they, she never came from Ethiopia. She never returned to Ethiopia. Oh, good stuff. Anything else? I know we love that kind of mystery. All right, so just to tie this off, look at verse 23 of chapter 10. I just want to put a very fine point on this. Verse 23 says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought a present, objects of silver and gold, garments, weaponry, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as numerous as the sycamores of the Shephelah. That's enough. It's just that this chapter goes so overboard. It overemphasizes Solomon's grandeur. We really don't know this is historic. Um, I mean, obviously there was some gold and all that sort of stuff, but you've heard about Solomon's treasure and that sort of stuff. It comes from this, where by the biblical account, Solomon amassed some kind of treasure that was stunner, like potentially unprecedented. Where'd it go? Who knows? Did it ever exist? Probably not, because that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is to continue to blow Solomon up so that he's so, so big that when everything falls apart, the fall is as big as possible. That's the point of the storyteller. The storyteller is not an accountant trying to give record of all of his accounts. That's not it. This story is really meant to say Solomon had it all. Everything you want and more. And still, Solomon was not committed to God the way God wanted him to be. That was the problem. So now let's go to section three. This is all about Solomon's errors. So broadly speaking, chapter 11 is a big turning point. There has been a narrative that has existed since Egypt that God with 
the Israelites will continue to help the Israelites grow. And so we have from Egypt this promise that God will be faithful if we are faithful. And so that happens with Moses. It happens with Joshua. It happens with the judges. It happens with Saul. It happens with David. It happens with Solomon. We have continued all of this connection all the way to this point where God says, I'm going to give you all the stuff that you want or need, and I just ask you to remain faithful. When we get to chapter 11, you saw how chapter 10 ended. It is the highest peak of that rise. Now chapter 11 pivots, and we begin the fall. Now it's going to be a long fall, because the kingdoms go on now for, especially with the southern kingdoms, a few centuries before the Babylonian exile. But the fall starts now. We have kind of peaked, and we are going over the crest, and now we begin to fall. There are so many problems with what Solomon has done. But let's just look at a few. Chapter 11, we are going to go through verse 13 because it, it's just a nice laundry list. Don't worry about the details. Just absorb the hit after hit after hit after hit. Chapter 11. King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the Israelites, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for they will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. Do you hear that? They will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. Solomon clung to them in love. Among his wives were 700 princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Catch that? For Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not completely follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the ab abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives who offered incense and sacrifice to their gods. Then the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this matter that he should not follow other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your mind and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet, for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. I will not, however, tear away the entire kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. <sighs> a lot happened there. There's a whole lot moving in that section. All of a sudden, God is done with Solomon. So it's as if it has, it's like you're filling a balloon. A whole lot of air can go into that balloon until the point at which no more air can go in, and it pops. And so it's as if Solomon, God has been watching Solomon do stuff 
over and over and over again. We're going to find out Solomon was king for 40 years. Most of that time, God's been doing what Solomon wanted, letting Solomon do the stuff he wanted. And now it's as if God says, enough. You have gone too far. Now, is that what really happened? Eh, don't worry about that. That's the way the story is being told. It is important that there is some historic accuracy in the story. And so, of course, anyone reading this story post-exile would know Solomon didn't lose the kingdom. The kingdom stayed unified until after his death. Was that because his son Rehoboam was bad or that Jeroboam just gathered enough energy to take the kingdom after Solomon's death? Whatever. No, no, no. The storyteller doesn't want it to be that because that keeps everything political. The storyteller wants it to be God's design that God remained faithful to Solomon even though Solomon was not faithful to him, but that faithfulness was going to ultimately go away. And for David's honor, he doesn't do that to Solomon himself? I don't know. I mean, to me, that just is literary technique. But essentially what is happening here is we are setting up the fall. So verses 14 through 40 just talks about more stuff. But jump to verse 41. Verse 41 says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did, as well as his wisdom, are, not, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon, which doesn't exist? The time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Solomon slept with his ancestors and was buried in the city of his father David, and his son, Rehoboam, succeeded him. So what has happened in this moment is that, like David, Solomon is worse than Saul in many ways. Remember I talked about David's character? David did, in the grand scheme of things, David is remembered as this wonderfully faithful person, brilliant military leader, loved God. Solomon's remembered as this uber-wealthy, powerful, wise king. And Saul is remembered as the failure who killed himself. And so Saul is the one who seems to be way third on the list of which of those three kings is best. But what we really see here is Saul had a similar problem to Solomon in that David still did the worst stuff. I mean, you've seen Solomon. Solomon's story is quite quick. David's story is much bigger. There's way more about David than about Solomon. And Solomon did a number of things. I mean, yes, he had a thousand wives and concubines. But there are things that David did that are super ugly and personal and bad that we don't really get from Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, we may say he should not have had a thousand people that he was sleeping with, but it certainly means, by the way the story is told, that they were all taken care of. I mean, it sounds like Solomon had this huge court that included all of these women, and they were probably all living great. I mean, we know he built all these different places for his foreign wives to worship their gods right there in Jerusalem. Solomon does not sound like a jerk. He sounds, though, like a person who has forgotten God. That was always Saul's problem. Saul never returned to God. Saul may have made the least number of mistakes 
between David and Solomon. But Saul did not go back and create that yoked relationship with God. And so that brings us back to the real point of this year, which is that is David's saving grace. David made the biggest mistakes, but David consistently again and again and again returned to God. That's why we anchor so much of our own theology around repentance. Jesus came and taught repentance and grace and return to God. That wasn't brand new. That was part of the Jewish tradition for centuries. This idea that return to God, be sorry, ask for forgiveness, forgive others, and then God's grace pours over you. Jesus didn't make that up. Jesus just honed the message in a very specific way. When Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, not new. That was Jewish way long ago. When Jesus says you are forgiven, that's not new. That's been around for a long, long time. But the way that the story, the Jewish story is told, lifts David up as the person who exemplified grace and return and repentance, not perfection. And then we see that amplified in Jesus. And that is so important for us because we often emphasize perfection. We beat ourselves up all the time when we make mistakes. We accuse others and we separate ourselves from others and we banish others and we hurt others because of their mistakes or perceived mistakes. And yet what we see consistently all the way through is that the people who are closest to God are not the people who make the least mistakes. They're often the people who make the worst mistakes. That's not the point. The point is that when you make a mistake, you repent and you return to God. That's all God wants is for you to come back again and again and again. And we just know that in a very particular way through Jesus, but he didn't make it up. It started way before him. Okay. Next week. Oh yeah, go ahead. It's quite interesting that the church dogma keep acting like the only way our sins could be forgiven was having Jesus crucified. And then so now our sins can be forgiven. When sins would be forgiven for thousand years. <laughs> That is a big theological question. So why would the church doctrine dogma talk about the substitutionary atonement of the cross, Jesus dying for our sins, when forgiveness had happened before then? There's a big shift with Jesus. I don't have time to really unpack this, but before Jesus, it was incumbent upon humans to seek that forgiveness and relationship with God that was always a, there was always a barrier and it was our humanity that was the barrier what Christian doctrine understands is that through Jesus that barrier has gone away and that Jesus becomes the connection point the bridge between God's perfection and our imperfection and so we still go to God through Christ for that kind of forgiveness, but it is through Christ that we're able to be forgiven in total, that the Spirit comes in us in total all the time. The Spirit was not new with Jesus, but the Spirit was only episodically sprinkled around 
before Jesus. It was now in the Pentecost moment where the Spirit comes into humanity for good, always. It's not, we're never without the Spirit in the way that people understood before Jesus. There's a whole, there is like tomes behind everything I just said that we can't unpack, but happy to do that when we do the Gospel of John, because that's really where all of this stuff comes from. Um, and so what I'll leave you with is next week, last class, and next week we're going to do the rest, kind of, the rest of First and Second Kings to then set up what will ultimately be the exile. And so be thinking, if you've got any questions about the exile, think back to our study of Daniel, because Daniel was the prophet during the exile, and see if you've got anything that you wonder about how we get from United Kingdom of Israel to the exile and then afterwards. And we're going to kind of do all of that in a macro way next week before we end for the year. Thank you all very much. Have a great day.